So um, today we're going to be reading from um, Mark's Gospel, and we're reading Mark 14, verses 1 to 9, and I've got my lovely assistant, Darren, is going to read it for us. Thanks, Dave. Morning, church. Um, I'm going to be reading from the New King James uh, Version, uh, from Mark 14, verses 1 through to 9. It's the plot to kill Jesus. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she brought the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for the burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks God. Uh, Becca, could you do me a quick favor and could you put that up on the screen? Mark 14, 1 to 9. Thank you. Okay, um, so what we've just heard there is the beginning of Mark's gospel. Following on, if you can cast your minds back to uh, Mark 13 that Graham brought a few weeks ago. It was a moment of triumph with Jesus coming on the clouds in glory. Um, but in this section of, of Mark's gospel, there is a bit of a change. What we're starting to see is um, a focus on the great passion of Christ. So we're coming from a, a period of great triumph to a period of passion. And when we talk about passion um, in this context, it's not sort of the passion that we might normally expect to feel, sort of um, we are, we're overcome with ecstatic emotion. This is a passion um, in this vernacular is rooted in suffering. So the phrase is used um, that theologians call this the passion. Um, there's an emphasis on a consuming desire of Christ. So the season that we're being prepared for here is a period when Christ's physical body is about to be offered up to the great indignities and horrific pain, a spiritual anguish associated with the crucifixion and the death just before his resurrection as he's raised in glory. In context to this verse, Christ is aware that this coming situation, and he knows it and preparing for its coming. He knows of the suffering that's going to come before him, and he begins to exhibit intense physical pain and agony. This is even before we're starting to ex experience the death on the cross. With our human understanding, we can't fully understand the, the great suffering that he's, he's going through in this mental anguish. And over the next short period, Christ's suffering will be so great physically and spiritually as the scourging, scourging, 
crucifixion and separation and death ultimately await Jesus. At this point in Mark's gospel, we see a foreshadowing and a change in tone as we progress to the hours where Christ begins more fully this period. Okay, I don't want to leave with that point massively. So the scene is being set. This is a one-time event. It's sort of the, the pivot point of history. So everything before it, we've got uh, a world which has no um, sanctification. There's no um, justification for our sin. Christ's death and everything after it, we have a period where there is sanctification, where we can have forgiveness. Okay. So for, so for the disciples, as they're taking part in this, and as we read this, we have to understand this, the context that we're, we're sat in. So Christ is aware of what's, what's coming up, but nobody else is fully aware. Christ has made allusions to it, so he suggested that, that he might have to die, that the temple might be brought down, but he's never said that he is going to die. Um, and in this section here, we have two main scenes, really. Uh, we have the plot in the first two verses. So we've got the, the high chiefs and the scribes. They are planning to uh, get rid of Jesus. And in the other section, we have a message about the alabaster flask that's been anointed over Jesus. So, focusing on the first part of the chapter, there's a plot to kill Jesus. There's a conversation between the chief priests and the scribes who have changed tact. Previously, they've been trying to oppose Jesus, discredit him, and uh, put him to shame. But that's not worked. And so now they are seeking his arrest and death. We believe that every word in the Bible has meaning. And so, while we can often skim over some parts of these, these first two verses, God's placed them there for a reason. And as such, we must, it is our duty to read it diligently and delve into the Word to mine the gold which God has placed before our eyes. In verse 1, it states that the plot is hatched two days before Passover and before the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Fearful of the people's reactions, the chief priests and scribes have schemed to wait until after the feast. Why is this important and what is the significance of this wait? Well, first of all, what we must remember is in, in the, the world that we we're existing in, as we cast our minds back to it, Passover was the major feast of the Jewish calendar. And it commemorates um, the Jewish exodus from Egypt as part of that period. So this is part of God's promise and protection to them. In Israel, in Jerusalem especially, there would have been a heightened sense of um, celebration as people from the surrounding areas came to Jerusalem. It was mandated that anyone within 15 miles of Jerusalem, any male within 15 miles of Jerusalem would have to come to the city to celebrate the Passover. Um, often it was people who came much further than that distance for that. So we're, we're in an atmosphere where there's lots of people gathered together with one aim in mind to celebrate the goodness of God, what he's done for them in their past, to remember their history. And there's a lot of emotion and excitement going on. The chief priests are aware of this. They're afraid because they do not want to upset this crowd, especially against this man who's um, obviously 
commands a great deal of respect and honor among the people. So, we look at Passover and what this exactly is. So, we must remember that during the, during the, um, the time the uh, Israelites were in Egypt, a number of plagues were sent to Egypt. The last of those plagues, the worst of them, was this, uh, when the angel of death would come and kill every firstborn male child. Um, anyone who didn't follow the commands that um, were given to Moses would also suffer the same fate. So regardless of whether you were a Jew or you're an Egyptian or a Gentile, someone else, then your firstborn child would die that night in Egypt. God sent special instructions which were that a lamb must be sacrificed and that that blood must be put over the door of your home. Anyone who failed to do so be terrible consequences for their child. So ultimately we must remember that God himself is eternal and omnipotent and all-present. And he knew that this correlates exactly to what is about to take place with Jesus. So while we in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, we have the saving of the, the firstborn children of God, we also have the saving of all people through the first blood of Jesus Christ. So Christ, who we also call the Lamb of God. The difference here is that in the Old Testament, they just had to follow some instructions. As long as they did that, they didn't really have to believe. They just sort of, you're safe, you're okay. But in the New Testament, what it says is, all those who believe and repent will be saved. So that is our, instead of us physically anointing the, the doorposts of our homes, that's us anointing our lives and our hearts with his blood. And that's through our faith and repentance in Jesus. We should also remember that the Passover period was a requirement that God had set before the Israelites, and it couldn't be ignored. Any Jewish family who didn't observe the act of carrying out this over their mantle would suffer the same fate as any Egyptian. Being saved by association, tradition, or through family ties were not acceptable. It was the hearing and following of God's commands that saved all those who obeyed. Similarly, under the new covenant, when we hear the gospel, we must respond as directed by Scripture. Our own heritage, family history, good works, or even our church attendance will not save us on that final day. Christ became for us the Lamb whose blood saves. And growing up, I used to go to all sorts of Christian churches, Christian events, youth groups, all those sorts of things. I'm sure many of you also might have done so. And I used to think that the message of the gospel, salvation, repentance, sin, they were kind of irrelevant to me because, well, you know, my parents had sorted that out for me. You know, I'm going to the right things, showing up, and I'm there, and I've got friends, and all that sort of stuff. Actually, no, without hearing the gospel message and applying it to myself, where I'm at today, I risk the same fate as those Jews who failed to follow God's instruction through Moses. 
if I was to rely just on what I've been brought up in, who my family were, the, the events that I'd gone to, it's not enough. If we hear the message today and we take home only one thing, remember this, that the Word of God is alive. He is speaking to you today. And do not assume that you are saved through any of your charitable actions, family history, personal theology. God has spoken and provides the means for salvation in the Bible. It's not in ourselves. It's not in the things that we do. It's in the Bible, and he explains it to us there. Okay. So we're just returning to the Scriptures, and we talk about also this Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and this goes alongside the Passover in its context. It forms part of the freeing of the Jews from the Egyptian slavery, under which the oppression of the Egyptian slavery, the Jews were told to prepare for their escape, to gather essential items to aid them in their journey. They were told to travel light and to bake bread without yeast so it may not rise, become leaven. This was to help reduce the cook time and the ease of transport for the bread. Things were done in a hurry. The journey was long and the Israelites were preparing for a journey which was unknown to them. Only God knew the destination, the pitfalls, the timing, and the blessings which awaited them. He sent out instructions on how to prepare. It was the faithfulness to this word which allowed the Israelites to follow and be saved. The parallels in the New Testament account of Mark are uncanny. Christ knows that his steps are planned, where they will lead, and ultimately what blessings they will bring. Though he also knows that his blood must be shed and, shed and himself sacrificed to sin and death. The chief priests and scribes make plans on the Feast of Unleavened Bread in haste, much as the Israelites prepared before they escaped Egypt. In both cases, God is sovereign, ordaining these events to make way for our sins to be forgiven. We have to wonder about the chief priests and scribes here. They're often portrayed and understood as the bad guys. And that I don't disagree with. They are the bad guys. But they are also just like us. In the midst of a celebration, remembering God's faithfulness and extraordinary miracles that accompanied the Exodus, these men of high public esteem plan the death of Jesus Christ. Christ, a man they have witnessed perform extraordinary miracles and speak with impeccable wisdom, they conspire to silence him. They had become blind to the truth of God, dead in their own pride and sins, had hardened their hearts like the Pharaoh did in Egypt. This is just as we once were, and sadly, many of us still are. We are consumed with our own thoughts and desires. We're guilty of being concerned about our own glory and our emotions and being hurt by the humbling words of God. The chief priests and scribes' reaction could so easily be ours if it were not for Christ and his saving grace. If you notice, they would not move against Jesus until they knew that the people would support them. The scripture describes how they await the opportunity to manipulate the crowd. 
They're planning to seize upon the high spirits of that celebration, a climax in a period when God should be glorified. Instead, they push their own agenda and begin to influence the crowd. It's funny how easily crowds are swayed by the words of a persuasive speaker. The voice of one in authority holds a subconscious weight that many people will submit to. Abusing this authority without any mention of prayer or attempted conversation with God, the high priests and the scribes use that emotional state of the people to turn against Jesus, to turn for their own means. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful to guard ourselves falling under the wrong teachings, becoming complicit as those people mentioned here are. Mankind has not changed in the thousands of years since this record was recorded. There are still voices which, which make use of heightened emotions and celebrations to manipulate people into following their plans. While the Hitlers and Stalins of the world are obvious to us, there are many which are much more difficult to identify. More and more we see the tactics employed today across society, our workplaces, and even within the church. We must be on guard continually. We must know our Bibles and check the scriptures to understand what it's saying. Just like the Bereans in Acts, where the, in Acts 17 it says, they received the word with all readiness, yet searched the scriptures daily to find out whether those things were so. We have been given the living word of God. We carry it in our pockets, on our phones, in our bookshelves. Yet so often we're being asked to ignore it in favor of the prevailing opinions of the day. Untethered to our Bibles and the Word of God, we can easily be manipulated. When we examine the remainder of Mark's gospel over the coming weeks, we should remind ourselves that the heinous crowd which is depicted, the rejection of Jesus, that could easily also be us. We could be transformed into the mob that rejects Jesus. The surety we have for salvation in the Word of God, we must hold fast to it and test all things with Scripture. The better we know our Bibles, the easier it is not to be fooled. When I was a young man, I, uh, I, w I worked a lot of part-time jobs, all sorts. I started when I was 16. I took one in retail over Christmas, um, working at a place, does anyone remember Dixon's? Yeah, okay, yeah, worked there. Um, Christmas time at Dixon's, very, very busy. Lots of people coming in and out, lots of sales. I was working on the, on the cashier. I was a cashier, basically, taking payments. Um, this is the days before contactless payments. Does anyone remember contactless before that? What do we use, cash? cash? Oh, the, the clicker with the, yeah, with the, the credit cards and the checks, that's it, checks. Yeah, so... We did, a lot of, we did a lot of cash payments, and uh, one day our manager took us aside and decided to teach us a valuable lesson. There was me and there's about two others, similar sort of age, 16, fresh, innocent, wide-eyed. 
Here we are, we're getting a lesson from the boss, and we were given a handful of banknotes and told to examine them. We get used to how they feel, how they sound, and how they look. Why? Because he was teaching us that though we are young and immature, we should know what the real deal feels and looks like. If we, if we become familiar with the real article, we can't be fooled when someone tries to give us a fake. So just like the cashier knows the fake notes from the real notes, we, we should be so used to the authentic word of God that when words are spoken which are not of him, they will stick out like a sore thumb that we cannot be fooled. I'm going to move on to the other part of this, this chapter. So this is the larger part. And here we are. We're talking about the anointing of Jesus. So this is often titled in our Bibles as the anointing of Jesus at Bethany. And here we have Jesus at Simon the leper's house in Bethany, and a curious situation is occurring. Jesus is anointed by a lady with an ointment of pure nard, and his disciples complain about its wasteful use, though Jesus rebukes them, stating that she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the word, she has done will be remembered. Okay, so to understand what happened here, we must look again at the context of the, of the event and the time in which it's set. Unlike today, when we've got easy access to nice-smelling perfumes, deodorants, and hygiene products, at the time of Christ, such things were incredibly expensive. With little access to an abundance of water, many people in heavily populated towns and cities had little choice but to wash irregularly. The smells at that time were likely to be pungent, offensive to our sanitized noses today. This meant that a highly fragrant commodity such as this, such as this um, nard held such a great value, and those who wore a fragrance would be distinct from all others. Interestingly, the amount mentioned in the scripture was likely the amount of a whole year's wages. So this 300 denarii that's recorded is likely to be a whole year's wages, and it was likely a prized family treasure used for important milestone events like marriages or for burials. The reaction of the disciples would likely have been justified. It was wasteful, and the true purpose is not readily evident. There were no indications to anyone that Christ was starting his journey or the significance of the anointing that it might have. Christ's rebuke to his disciples reveals a number of important points to us and his disciples about the purpose of the journey he was about to take. He firstly announced that he would be buried and that she had anointed him before this was due to take place. Immediately, this informs the disciples that Christ is about to die. The costly anointing was suitable for a royal burial and would have set Christ apart from contemporaries within smelling distance. 
The articles of royalty which accompany Christ are consistent through the Bible. From birth, death, crucifixion, he has outward signs that he is someone exceedingly special. And following the anointing, it would have been hard to ignore his smell as the fragrance was strong and lasting. The second thing in this statement is that the gospel will be spread to the world. Up until this point, the concept of the gospel being spread beyond the Jewish people remains hidden and does not get again get revealed until Acts 10, when Peter hears from God and the gospel is preached across the world. We are presented yet again with another proof of Christ's omnipotence and divine nature, prophesying these things about himself which are yet to come. We, all, we know them all too well today. Christ knows that he will be proclaimed and that he will save the children of all mankind from all across the globe. There is no doubt or uncertainty in this conviction. On hearing this, we should be reminded also that Christ was preparing for his own death. The spread of the gospel was at the forefront of his mind, and we should reflect on this and be reminded that we too are called to proclaim the gospel to the whole world, that it was something Jesus held in the highest importance. On our Christian journey, and as we begin more and more to mimic Christ, the desires and values of Jesus should also be part of our own desires and thinking. Thirdly, we must wonder and sympathize with the disciples here. Was Christ's message not also for the poor? This oil and the money, could they not have been spent for the poor? Surely to answer this question, it should be a resounding yes. Yet Christ says, you will always have the poor with you, and suggests to the disciples that he would not always be with them. Now, it's important People have historically interpreted this exchange in some damaging ways, making the suggestion that Christ says the poor should always exist and that we shouldn't waste our time trying to change that. In fact, Christians should refer to this in a slightly different manner. In fact, Christ's statement refers to a passage in Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 to 11, in which all those hearing at the time would have known and understood. And that's that in that uh, scripture, it says, for the poor will always be with you and will always be with you in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother and to the needy and poor in the land. In the same way that I might say sticks and stones, and you might finish that phrase, when Christ says, you will always have the poor with you, the people at the time would have heard that and understood the rest of that scripture. So when Christ says that, he's actually referring to bless those people with an open hand to the needy and poor in the land. So Christ's statement goes far from suggesting inaction or ambivalence towards the poor and afflicted. He is saying that we should open wide our hands to the poor and needy. Christ calls us to action, to care for and look after the poor among us. The story is also reported in John's gospel. And in John's gospel, it mentions that Judas is identified as the ringleader who leads the outcry at the wastefulness. John, however, calls Judas out and he says, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
as a keeper of the money bag, he used it to help himself. Judas was chiefly concerned about the wasted money, seeing an abundance which he could not take for himself. Judas had become used to stealing from the poor, taking what was meant for God's glory and using it for himself. Christ called the woman's action a good work. In the Greek, there are two words that can be used for good. Agathos describes a thing which is morally good, while kalos describes something which is not only good, but also lovely. While something may be agathos good, it can also be cold, austere, and unattractive. The use of kalos means that Jesus thought the good work the woman did was lovely and of the best order. The anointing oil over Jesus was a result of love. An act of love towards Jesus, not for anything he had done, but for who he was. An important distinction. He was being honored and loved because of who he was, not because of what he might do. When we approach Jesus, we should examine our own motives. Why do we praise God? What is the motive behind our love offerings? Should not they be as pure as those of the woman? Giving freely out of love without any expectation to receive a reward. This is the heart Jesus called Kalos good. A heart that does not make sense of those consumed by the love of earthly things. The Judas in each of us must check ourselves. Do we care more about the money, afflicted by our greed, or do we fear offering an extravagant display of love to the Lord? Mark's account is clear. Jesus highly valued the actions of the woman, though the disciples criticized her sharply. Let this be a lesson to us. God loves when we offer extravagant worship to him though others may not recognize it. Others may not understand our actions and judge us to be foolish and wasteful. But the Lord does not see it that way. Let us choose to be extravagant in our love and worship of God and try not to judge brothers and sisters as it is so easy to do. Personally, I find the account of the disciples and principally Judas the most alarming aspect. Judas was a trusted disciple of Jesus, close as a brother to him on a daily basis, yet he had become consumed with greed and developed a lust for money. Judas' sin is one which can so easily beset us in the Western world. We have access to so much and are bombarded with images of other people with flashy things. We too can become covetous and hoard up our wealth ignoring the call of Jesus to care for the poor and the needy. We do not respond with our open hand. Ultimately, this led Judas to the betrayal of Christ. We should be careful to guard our hearts, examine our own desires, that we may not raise up idols in the place of God. The truth is, we are all human. We all fall short of the glory and the holiness and the pure life shown to us by Christ. We need forgiveness on a daily basis. We need to anoint the doorposts and the mantle of our hearts with his saving blood.
we need to learn to hear his voice better through the study of his word. There is no amount of spiritual covering from family, ministers, religious experiences, which can act as a substitute from a personal relationship with God. So I don't say these things as condemnation, absolutely not. This is, so we have been blessed to be here today, to hear the word and to be reminded of the things that God is doing and working through us. As we go away, we should consider these things with all seriousness. If there are things in your life which you need to address, God is waiting to help you through them. Christ did not go through the passion for his own glory, for that was already his. He subjected himself to this for us and for you. And it's one of the reasons why we treasure the the verse. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. So, Lord God, uh, we thank you for uh, this day. We thank you, God, for uh, your word and for the reminders that you've brought to us. We pray, Lord God, that uh, over the next, uh, next short while, you will bring them back to us as reminders that we would uh, come back to you. We'd get, it, get our heads deeper into the Bible, Lord God. We would learn to know you more, the authentic you, and develop that personal relationship more strongly and worship you with more fervency. We thank you, Jesus, and we pray that uh, you would just bless us over this coming week. Amen. Mike, if you would like to lead us in some worship.